You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. For the next few weeks, we're going to be covering topics that occur during one particular time in England. Some of these events will occur in Europe, in England, Scotland, Ireland, moving on to Spain and France, Rome, even moving further east as England searches for a land route to get to Asia. But more of them will take place moving west in North America as England searches for the Northwest Passage, in some of the first English colonies in what would one day become the United States, and more importantly, down a little further south, in the Caribbean, as England begins a campaign that will move against the monopoly of the Spanish Empire in the New World. This campaign is done primarily through the use of what were known as gentlemen adventurers, committing little more than acts of some of the most notorious piracy that the Caribbean would ever see. And these events will eventually take us all the way around the globe in search of Spanish treasure. So this week, we're going to be introducing the central character in this period of time. We'll be introducing Good Queen Bess, the Virgin Queen, the Pirate Queen, Queen Elizabeth I of England. This is episode number five, Gloriana. The story of Queen Elizabeth starts about 30 years before her birth. It starts, in fact, one year before Columbus set sail on his maiden voyage, 1491. That was the year that Henry VIII was born. Of course, at the time, he wasn't Henry VIII. He was merely Henry Tudor, the second son of King Henry VII. His older brother, Arthur, was the heir apparent. Now, Arthur was trained as a knight and a soldier and a noble and a politician, all of the things, in short, that you needed to know to be king— while his younger brother Henry was sent off with his sisters to live with their mother, who was Henry's first tutor. This is important because Henry was born near the end of what's known as the Wars of the Roses, a period of time in England where two houses vied for control of the English throne. Henry's father was a member of one of those houses, what was known as the Lancasters. However, his mother was actually a member of the opposing house, known as the House of York, So while he was nominally a tutor, a member of the Lancaster side, he was trained by and reportedly looked a lot like his Yorkish mother. Now this shouldn't have been of concern because his older brother Arthur, who was not trained by his Yorkish mother and looked very little like her, was going to be king. However, Arthur died before his ascension to the throne. Of course, there was the beginnings of a Yorkish rebellion, another civil war, another war of the roses. 
However, both sides were appeased because a Lancaster would be on the throne, but he was so much of the temperament of the Yorkish side and even looked so much like them that both sides could accept Henry as king. On the day of his coronation, it could be argued that Henry ended the Wars of the Roses by becoming Henry VIII, King of England. Not too bad for your first day in office. Henry's older brother, Arthur, had been promised to and eventually married a Spanish noblewoman, a woman named Catherine of Aragon. She was actually the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, the Catholic monarchs who we've talked about a fair amount before now. However, she was widowed upon the death of Arthur. Now, her worth as a diplomatic marriage had been served. That diplomatic tie between Spain and England was already pretty strong, but for a long time, Henry had loved his brother's wife from afar, so he insisted that it was his father's dying wish that he marry his brother's widow, and he did so. Now, it's argued that perhaps that wasn't the case. There were better diplomatic alliances that could have been made, but at the time, it was a pretty important alliance because England and Spain were allied against their common enemy of France, which both countries had been fighting for a long, long time. Henry was on top of the world. He was a young, handsome, charismatic, powerful monarch with the girl of his dreams, who was heavy with child while he was off on the continent fighting wars that were gaining him huge amounts of respect and recognition. His wife gave him a child, a beautiful daughter, whom he named Mary. He named her Mary largely because Henry was a very proud Catholic. He even wrote a book. He was the first English monarch to write a book since Alfred the Great centuries before. Henry's book was entitled Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, or An English Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which earned him the title Defender of the Faith from Pope Leo X. Now this was, of course, in response to the Lutheran heresy, which was gaining traction on the continent at an astonishing speed. Henry felt, and it's a fair bet that his wife, the daughter of the Catholic monarchs, felt that it was a responsibility of any good Catholic monarch to write such a work. They were both very proud Catholics. However, Henry's faith and pride in the Catholic Church wasn't going to last. Henry's star began to fade. While once he had been a European superstar, handsome, young, adventurous in his wars on the continent, those wars left the realm in dire need of money. So he retired back to England to while away the time, hunting boar, passing his days, and his wife, while she had still only borne him one child, a girl, unfit to be his heir. As the years passed, Henry spent more and more of his time with mistresses, which wasn't unheard of at the time. A marriage between two monarchs was a diplomatic alliance meant to create children that would carry on their lineage. It had very little to do with love or even sex, which they managed to find with many other partners. Catherine herself had lovers outside of Henry, and that was perfectly acceptable. However, Henry had a mistress, Mary Boleyn, who was one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. This was pretty typical at the time. What was atypical was that Henry began to develop feelings for Mary's younger sister, Anne Boleyn. Anne was something of a mystery to Henry. While he had had access to any of the ladies-in-waiting that he had desired before, Anne was engaged. She was engaged to marry another nobleman in Henry's court, which, regardless, he decided to interfere 
in that upcoming marriage. He had one of his counselors, really his main counselor, the guy who kind of ran England on a day-to-day basis. He had him dress down the fiance of Anne Boleyn in public very harshly until the man was in tears and agreed to marry someone else and leave Anne Boleyn out of his marriage plans. This was something of a tragedy because it seems like there was real love in that potential marriage between Anne and that nobleman, and she never forgave the man who she blamed for it, who wasn't Henry, but that counselor. Now that Anne was single, Henry started courting her. He tried all his usual advances, which had always worked in the past, but Anne rebuffed him. So he redoubled his efforts. He offered to make him not just a mistress, but his sole mistress, a concubine that was, in European courts at the time, almost a position that rivaled the queen. It was somebody who was well-respected among the court in places like France that even had a name for it. But still, Anne turned him down. You see, Anne wasn't just some strumpet of the court, just a typical lady-in-waiting. Anne was a highly educated woman in Europe at the time. She had gone to France, which was perhaps the most advanced European court at the time in things like manners and politics, to get her training, where she learned courtly poise and everything that it took to be an early Renaissance woman. She was fluent in Latin, fluent in French, and fluent in English, and really well-educated in things that most women wouldn't have been educated in at the time at all. She was really somewhat brilliant, even somewhat subversive. In her time on the continent, she had been exposed to the Lutheran heresy, which, while she might not exactly be called a Protestant yet, she definitely had a lot of sympathy for the Lutheran cause. But she was also an honorable woman, a woman who would not allow Henry into her bed unless they were married, which was something that, considering Henry was already married, didn't seem very possible. However, Henry was a stubborn king who, when he wanted something, and something that was denied him again and again, he was going to find a way to make it happen. Henry was dissatisfied with his wife's Catherine inability, as he saw it, to give him a male heir. So he decided that if he were to marry Anne Boleyn, he would have to have his marriage with Catherine annulled. Divorce was not even something that was thought of at the time, but having your marriage annulled was possible. See, there's a verse in the Bible, in Leviticus, that says that one should not marry their brother's wife. However, Henry had gotten a special dispensation from the Pope allowing him to do this. He pleaded with the Pope to annul the marriage, saying that it was a mistake to have allowed this marriage in the first place. Now, whether or not the Pope would have been open to this can't really be known, because at the time, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor that we talked about last week, he was in Rome invading the city, and at the time, he had the Pope held hostage. Anything that was coming off the Pope's desk was really written by the office of Charles V. And Charles V was the cousin of of Catherine of Aragon, her closest living male relative. There was no way that he was going to allow Henry to have that marriage annulled. So for six long years, this scandal etched its way across Europe. Henry held trials in which he tried to have his marriage annulled by the courts. There were religious conclaves about whether or not this was religiously viable. But no matter what he did, Henry could not get his way which was something that was alien to Henry. So he decided to really take it a step beyond, to just cut ties with Rome entirely. This may have been on the advice of the woman whom he loved and desired beyond all else, Anne Boleyn, who 
sympathetic to the Lutheran cause may have suggested that he cut ties with Rome. If he were to do that, then he would be able to marry her, which is exactly what happened. There were, of course, other systemic problems that England was having with Rome at the time. The Lutheran heresy was growing all throughout Europe, and a lot of English people were sympathetic to it. However, it really hadn't taken hold on the island yet. But once Henry decided that Rome was no longer the spiritual power in England, he made himself the head of the English church, essentially being a rival pope for his nation of England. Now that the Pope held no sway in England, he was allowed to annul his marriage with Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn, which he did, in secret at first. But within only a few weeks, she was pregnant, and so Henry was able to marry her much more publicly and announce to all the nations of Europe that the Pope no longer held sway in the nation of England, and now what would be known as the Anglican Church was the Protestant religion of England. Unfortunately, that first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. However, this was not tremendously uncommon at the time. She was pregnant again shortly thereafter. All of Henry's advisors and astronomers and doctors told him that this child was certain to be a male heir. So Henry prepared extensively to have this child baptized. He had seen everything taken care of, every minute detail. This was going to be the first Protestant heir born in any European country, and he meant to see it done with all the pomp and ceremony that he could muster. He must have been tremendously disappointed when Anne Boleyn gave birth to another girl child. However, he went through with the ceremony, even so far as to have her named Princess which was, in England at the time, only used for a child who was meant to be in the line of succession. It was very rare before this. And there must have been a lot of affection for this child, because he named this girl after his sister, who had died when he was very young. He named her Elizabeth. After a miscarriage and the birth of yet another daughter, Henry's passion for Anne seems to have faded. Regardless, within only about two years, Anne was pregnant again. It was during this pregnancy that Henry was injured during a jousting match in his leg. The injury wasn't life-threatening immediately, but it would lead to complications that would eventually take Henry's life. After hearing of this injury, Anne miscarried again. This time, it was a boy. Henry saw this as evidence, perhaps a sign, that Anne Boleyn would never give him a son and heir. He decided that he needed to find a new wife. However, he would not be able to just have this marriage annulled as he had his last one. He was going to have to find another solution. What he came up with was to accuse Anne Boleyn of witchcraft. Not only witchcraft, but adultery with at least five other men one of whom happened to be her brother, so he could go ahead and toss incest onto the pile as well. At her trial, one of the jurors was that same nobleman to whom she'd been engaged as a younger woman. When he declared his verdict of guilty, it was said that he was made physically sick by the act. It was a unanimous decision. Every juror decided she was guilty. That was the kind of power that Henry VIII had at that time. The young Elizabeth was only two years old when her mother was beheaded. She never really got to know her mother, 
and would, for the early parts of her life, be completely dedicated to her father. It was only ten days later that Henry married a commoner named Jane Seymour, who would quickly become pregnant and then bear him, finally, a son, who he would name Edward, Prince Edward of England. Henry VIII finally had his male heir. Much like he had been as a boy, he sent his daughters away to go study elsewhere. Elizabeth's tutor, a man named Roger Ashe, was full of praise for her. He considered her not just studious, not just bright, but brilliant. He said, quote, The Lady Elizabeth shines like a star. The constitution of her mind is exempt from female weakness. No apprehension can be quicker than hers. End quote. It was said that by the age of 13, Elizabeth was fluent not only in English, but in Welsh, Irish, Scottish, Cornish, French, Latin, Italian, and Greek. She learned this through a process called double translation, where she would translate a work from its original language into English and then translate it back into its original language from her translation, and no mistakes were allowed or she would have to do it all over again. And this was a practice that Elizabeth would continue for the rest of her life as, as sort of a mental relaxation, sort of like some people might do a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku. Her father didn't see her at all during this period in her life. He would send her birthday presents through a courtier. He would send one noble or another to go send his regards. And one noble commented when he went to go visit her at Christmas that Elizabeth asked after the king with the gravity of a 40-year-old woman. She desperately wanted her father's attention. There's a portrait of her painted at about this age that presents Elizabeth exactly as she wanted to be seen, not just by the world, but by her father. She is standing, holding a book in her hand, marking her place to show what a studious young woman she is. Next to her, there is a copy of the Bible sitting open to show just what a religious woman she is. She is the very picture of what a lady in that time in England was supposed to be. She would send these messengers back with presents that she had made for her father and stepmother. One of these presents that still exists today is the copy of a book, a work of fiction that she wrote, which is bound in cloth of gold and just superbly beautiful, but on the inside, written entirely in Elizabeth's hand, there is a story written in Latin that is pristine. Not the content of the story, but the way that she wrote it. There is not a blotch or a smudge or a single correction throughout this entire work. It's unbelievable. She was a 13-year-old. I would say that this sort of genius at that age rivals the likes of child prodigies like Leonardo da Vinci or Mozart or Beethoven. And her father took notice. Perhaps his heart softened as he grew older, but he brought his daughters back to court and even had the forethought to reinstate them in the line of succession. If anything were to happen to Edward, Mary, the eldest daughter, would take the throne and then potentially Elizabeth after her. Or perhaps he brought his daughters back and put them into the line of succession because he knew that his time was coming to a close. That jousting injury, which he had received years ago, wound up claiming his life. It was, by all accounts, exceedingly painful near the end. When Elizabeth and her younger brother, Edward, were told of their father's death, it's said that they fell into each other's arms and were inconsolable with grief. Their older sister, Mary, however, was old enough when she saw the injustice done to her mother to remember it vividly. 
and it was said that she was much less sympathetic to her father's death. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. So there was Elizabeth, 14 years old. Her brother, the King of England, her father, passed away, having left her a small inheritance and third in line of succession. This made her a promising candidate for marriage. There were two brothers at the time, the brothers Seymour, who were potentially the most powerful men in the kingdom. They were uncles to the young King Edward, and the younger brother, Thomas Seymour, had his eye on Elizabeth. Not just Elizabeth, he also proposed to her sister Mary. You see, it was power that he was after. But of course, don't picture him on one knee on a moonlit night, handing a ring to either sister. No, when you're asking for the hand of the king's sisters, you ask the king. And when the king is 11 years old, you're not really asking the king. You're asking the privy council, the small group of men that had, under Henry, helped him rule the nation, and now, effectively, with Prince Edward not having reached his majority, ruling the nation in his stead. The Privy Council put the nicks on this. Thomas Seymour was not to marry either Mary or Elizabeth. So, he took the next best thing. He married Catherine Parr, the widow that Henry had left when he passed away. That was, if we're counting, and we are, his sixth wife, Catherine Parr had been deeply in love with Thomas Seymour for many years, reportedly, so she accepted mightily. However, she was also the legal guardian of the young Elizabeth, so when she married Thomas Seymour, he became not only her stepfather, but her legal guardian. Most of what we know about the following summer 
comes from a testimony from Elizabeth's governess, Cat Ashley. Cat Ashley would, sometime after the events of that summer, find herself in the Tower of London, and her testimony taken by men who would use it against Elizabeth. Almost immediately after marrying Catherine Parr, Thomas Seymour began acting inappropriately towards Elizabeth. At first, it could be called innocent enough. Cat Ashley said that they would be found romping through the gardens. They would play hide-and-seek, or he would chase her through the gardens, and whenever he managed to catch her, he would pick her up in his arms. There was one occasion that Cat Ashley recorded in which her stepmother, Catherine Parr, held Elizabeth while Thomas Seymour pulled his sword and, quote, cut her dress into a hundred pieces. It wasn't long before Seymour gained possession of a key to Elizabeth's bedchamber. He reportedly would come into Elizabeth's room very early in the morning, only partly dressed, and crawl into bed with her, and tease her in a way that I don't think anybody would find appropriate for a stepfather in his stepdaughter's bed. Cat Ashley reprimanded him, but he said that he had no intention of stopping because, quote, he meant no harm by it. Thomas Seymour was 40 years old. By all accounts, he was handsome, charming, and powerful. Elizabeth was only 14. From the account of Cat Ashley, Elizabeth seems to have been conflicted by the actions of her stepfather. There were times early in the morning where she would play hide-and-seek behind the curtains of her bed with him, giggling and laughing. It must have been, after all, somewhat flattering. However, other times she would rise very early, and he would find her, when he came to her bedchamber, fully dressed and there to reprimand him for his inappropriate behavior and offending her maidenly honor. But then Catherine Parr became pregnant with his child, and it appears that their relationship evolved into something somewhat more serious. Catherine Parr found out about this, and as soon as she did, she sent Elizabeth away. However, Catherine Parr died shortly after giving birth to his child, and their relationship apparently started up again in earnest. This time, Elizabeth's governess seems to have supported marriage between Thomas and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth herself seems to have been somewhat enthusiastic about the match. However, permission still had to be given by the king and the privy council, and they seem to be dragging their feet. What happens next isn't exactly clear. We don't have an exact account of it. But what we do know is that Thomas Seymour was found one day in the bedchamber of King Edward. He was found because King Edward kept many dogs, and they had begun barking. And when the king's guards burst into the room, they found that Thomas Seymour had drawn his sword and run one of King Edward's dogs through. Being in the presence of the king with your sword drawn and obviously bloody, that was treason. It's possible that he found out that the king was not going to allow him to marry his sister Elizabeth. It's also possible that he believed that were he to kill the king, a newly Protestant nation would not allow the king's oldest sister, Mary, a Catholic, to be queen, so that he could marry the newly raised Queen Elizabeth. However, being arrested for treason put a little bit of a crimp in his plans. Cat Ashley, the governess of Elizabeth, was also arrested. This is when we get that account from her interrogators that they used against Elizabeth. 
Now, Elizabeth wasn't arrested, but she was interrogated harshly. It was believed that she had taken part and helped plan this attempt on the king's life, which would have, of course, made her treasonous as well. There were rumors at the time that Elizabeth was in fact pregnant with Thomas Seymour's child, and that only added fuel to the fire of the rumor mill around the young Princess Elizabeth. However, there was no strong evidence to support the belief, and when that pregnancy never materialized, she was able to claim that she was still a virgin, she was still chaste, and still completely innocent of any treason against King Edward. Thomas Seymour would, in short order, be beheaded on Tower Hill. Elizabeth had been pushed forcefully into the world of adult politics and adult sexuality. It had begun with her being abused and almost certainly traumatized, and ended with her nearly losing her head for treason. She had also learned an important lesson. She had learned that any man who showed interest in her had eyes not only for her, but for the throne. It was shortly after this that it would begin to appear in Elizabeth's journal writings and correspondences that she wished to remain unmarried forever, that she found solace in this state of spinsterhood. She was only 15, and it seems that the events of the previous year had led her to wish never to marry. Despite surviving the attack on his life, King Edward died shortly thereafter of tuberculosis. During his short reign, he had continued the policies of his father, Henry VIII, in persecuting Catholics across his realm and enforcing the English church upon them. He was staunchly against the Catholics. He had decided, knowing that he was going to die, that he couldn't allow his oldest sister Mary to become queen. So he had her removed from the line of succession on the grounds that she was a bastard from an illegitimate marriage. His logic in removing his eldest sister, also removed his middle sister, Elizabeth, from the line of succession. He chose a Protestant cousin, Lady Jane Grey, to be his successor, and after his death, she took the throne. But then, an army of loyal royalists, as well as a number of Catholics who desperately wanted an end to seeing Protestants on the throne, arose to support the queenship of Mary. It seems that there was very little support for Lady Jane Grey because this army marched through the countryside and into London, meeting very little resistance, essentially, and immediately deposed Lady Jane Grey, and very quickly, Queen Mary ascended to the throne. It's a strange twist of fate that this army, comprised largely of Catholics who wanted an end to Protestant rule in England, put Mary on the throne, but that also put Elizabeth, a Protestant, back in the line of succession. But that was still some time off. While Mary may not have had much love for her father, she had certainly learned a lot from him. Henry's reign had been terrible for any Catholics living in England that dared to oppose his change to a Protestant church. However, Mary immediately decided to try and undo all of those changes. And she did so with unprecedented cruelty. Her persecution of the Protestants was every bit as terrible as her fathers of Catholics had been. She began an almost systematic institution of persecution and execution of any Protestant leaders or anyone who dared speak out against the rise of the Catholic Church. This resulted in the execution of over 300 people who were burned alive. 
Some of them, the lucky ones, had a kind executioner who would tie bags of gunpowder around their legs that would explode and make it a quick death. The rest were slowly roasted alive. This was what led to Queen Mary of England being known forever as Bloody Mary. A resistance soon evolved. Protestants all around England saw these people burned at the stake as martyrs for their cause. They wanted a return to the English church and a return to Protestantism. Beyond the burning and persecution of Protestants in England, Queen Mary reaffirmed the alliance with Spain by marrying the new king, King Philip. The Protestant army was growing. They had many soldiers. They had many generals. But what they needed was not exactly a leader, but a figurehead, someone who they could rally around and support as a claimant to the throne of England who would, of course, have to be someone that had a legitimate claim and was a good Protestant. The obvious choice was the Queen's younger sister, Elizabeth. One of the leaders of the rebellion, a man named Thomas Wyatt, wrote Elizabeth a letter, letting her know that a rebellion was looming and soon would explode into England. But Elizabeth was clever and ever-cautious. She read the letter and immediately burned it, and when the messenger asked for a reply, all she told him is that she would do, quote, as God would direct her. Her diplomacy proves to have been a smart move, because Wyatt's rebellion, of course, failed. Now, Queen Mary knew that Wyatt had contacted Elizabeth. However, there was no evidence to connect her to the rebellion, so she could not be arrested and immediately beheaded for treason. This was a common theme in Elizabeth's life. She always played her cards very close to the chest. She never let her true intentions be known, not even to her closest advisors. This would prove very important and important to our story because later, fighting de facto wars against the Spanish, she would use tactics that could not be traced back to her exactly while they still put a heavy crimp in Spain's financial prospects and allowed that money to flow directly into England's coffers. This was the beginning of Caribbean piracy, and it all rests on the shoulders of this diplomatic monarch that Elizabeth would become. She was learning these lessons very well in the days before she ascended to the throne. But Mary knew that Elizabeth was somehow connected to the rebellion. While there wasn't enough evidence to behead her, she had her arrested and locked in the Tower of London and then removed from the line of succession. Elizabeth had made some important contacts and friends while locked in the tower, but after some time, Mary had her released, largely because she believed she was pregnant with an heir that would legitimize her reign and keep Elizabeth from ever really being a threat. This pregnancy was, however, a phantom pregnancy. It was a tumor that would wind up taking her life. It became clear to everybody in the court and in the nation, and especially her Catholic husband, King Philip of Spain, that Mary wasn't long for this world. However, much like a Catholic army had helped put Elizabeth back in the line of succession, it was that Catholic monarch who helped Elizabeth gain the throne. Elizabeth had been removed from the line of succession and continued to be so even after she was released from the Tower of London. However, If she were not put back into the line of succession, the person who would have succeeded her on the throne would have been another woman named Mary. That would be Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots. 
You see, she had grown up in France and married the young French king, which would have made her the queen of not only France and subsequently Scotland, which she had a right to, but had she taken the English throne, that would have also made her queen of England, queen of Ireland, and queen of Wales. This was unacceptable to King Philip, to see his old enemy, the French king, have that much influence to his north. He would have been essentially alone in Europe in his alliance against the French, so he could not allow this woman, Mary, Queen of Scots, to take the throne. So he convinced his wife, Bloody Mary, to allow Elizabeth back into the line of succession, which just a few days before her death, she did. It's recorded that upon learning of the death of her sister, Elizabeth said, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now that may be true, or that may be a little bit of propaganda, but considering what Elizabeth has come through to get to the position she is in, I think we can allow her a little bit of propaganda. One of the key figures that we'll be talking about next week is a man that Elizabeth is going to have many clashes with. That will be the Spanish ambassador in England, which he had very recently had a place at court that was esteemed. King Philip of Spain was, after all, also King of England through his marriage with Mary, and now he was going to clash repeatedly with the new queen, Elizabeth. He was recorded saying in a letter to the Spanish king about Elizabeth, quote, she is a very vain and clever woman. She puts great store by all the people who put her in her present position, and she will not acknowledge that your majesty or the nobility of the realm had any part in it. She is determined to be governed by no one. End quote. And Elizabeth would not be. For the entirety of her life, Elizabeth would be an independent monarch that fought not only to keep her position and her place, but to improve England's position in Europe and in the world. Another character who we're going to be talking about at some length next week is a man named John Dee. He was a scientist, an astronomer, but also something of an occultist at a time when that was seen as a relevant science. He advised her that the best date to hold her coronation would be Sunday, the 15th of January, 1559. And on that day, Princess Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth I of England. Next week, we're going to talk about the nation that Elizabeth would inherit. The state that England was in was somewhat dire. We'll talk about the many people that helped Elizabeth secure her position throughout England and throughout Europe. These will be men like John Dee, her astronomer, her privy council, many of whom are hugely important figures in the history of England. And we'll be talking about her gentleman adventurers. And we'll introduce the primary character in the next few weeks of this podcast, Sir Francis Drake. But that will do it for this week. I hope that this gave a good picture of the woman who was ruling England and who would be a central player in everything that's going to happen over the next few decades and the next couple of centuries. This would change the face of the world forever, and a large part of that drama will involve the gold and silver in the Caribbean, on the Spanish Main, and encompassing the globe. I'd like to thank everybody that's been listening to the show. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback, and I really appreciate that. 
If there are any people out there that are truly enjoying the show, I urge you to leave a review either at iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn, all of which we are on. After you're done with that, why not go check out the musicians who did the theme music for our show? That would be, as always, Brillig, and the song is The Old Captain, which is absolutely spectacular. If you enjoy it, why not go check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. Then you can go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. Over there, you can listen to episodes, see some supplemental materials, and leave a comment if you'd like. We also are accepting donations through the website, which really help keep the podcast afloat. It helps us cover the cost of research materials, as well as offset a little bit of the cost of hosting. Then you can go on over to our Facebook page, The Pirate History Podcast, on Facebook, and why not give us a like over there, or go on over to Twitter and follow us at Black Flagcast. Every little bit really helps get the podcast noticed. Tonight 